0: Well, good morning. Happy New Year. You guys all have a... I, you know, I, uh, for those of you who are, are Rams fans, I'm sorry. Yesterday was a painful day. But I do know that we have a Notre Dame fan or two in this house that are excited about their team doing well. My Trojans, not so well. It's all right. But there was something that g- good that did happen over the course of, of this break. And that was that we finally got around to teaching my youngest son, Grayson, how to ride a bike without training wheels, which is great. About about the same time that on my Facebook feed, there was a little video that popped up about how we taught my son Ethan when he was four years old, and we're like, well, Grayson's six. We're a little behind the curve, but you know, apparently younger siblings end up getting the short end of the stick. So we finally figured out how to get him riding a bike. He's so excited. He loves it. <clears throat> After the, the first time, though, of course, where you're running next to him and holding onto his shirt, and he got it. I realized I'm going to be running next to him for the next several days because he, he has this tendency when, when he starts finding himself going a little bit too much one way, he, he does this on the handlebars and then he goes this way and then he does this and he goes that way and, and it was like a, watching a ping-pong ball back and forth along the street. And my job, I, I wasn't so concerned that he was going to fall. My kids are resilient. I was more concerned that he was going to cause property damage to one of the parked vehicles along the side. <laughs> so I was a little self-serving in that. And we laugh about that tendency, but I realize that we're a lot like that, too, as adults. We still have this tendency to overcorrect when we find ourselves going in a direction that we don't want to, or perhaps in a direction we realize, oh, well, I'd like to address that over there. We tend to do this. So, you know, for instance, somebody might hurt your heart in a relationship, and you decide, I am never going to entrust my heart to another person like that again overcorrection. Or we wake up one day and we, we bleary-eyed, we step on the scale, and we realize that we, we packed on a couple extra pounds over Christmas. And so you decide in your heart, I'm never eating sugar again, and I'm going to work out every day this year, right? A couple of you probably made that determination. Um, and that's one of the reasons why all of the gyms are very crowded right around this time of year. But give it to like February 15th or so, and they'll clear out again for you, for those of you who are used to going regularly. But we we have this tendency to overcorrect, and if we feel like we're moving too much in one direction, we jerk the wheel and we kind of go the opposite way. And I'll be honest with you, churches do the same thing. I've been in pastoral leadership for over 15 years now, and if there's one thing I've noticed is that we have this tendency to say, hey, this time of year... I want to make some resolutions. We want to kind of refocus our efforts. We want to have a cohesive vision for where we're headed. And I think that's important, to know where you're headed. But quite often, as a church, we, we do this thing where we say, okay, last year we were doing this. What are we going to do this year? And we go, well, in doing this, we weren't doing that so much, so let's do that. So then we jerk the handlebars, and we start going in that direction, and we completely forget about what God had already laid on our heart to do the year previously. And quite often, we just abandon that altogether. And a year is not nearly long enough to develop those habits and that long obedience in the same direction that begins to bear fruit. If there's one thing that we notice is that as you continue to move in one direction, you get better at doing it. And so if, if every year we're jerking the handlebars, then ultimately we're going to lose the traction that we have been gaining. And so we this year, as November rolled around, and myself and the staff and the elders got together, and we we began to prayerfully go, God, where are you leading us as a church? What would the focus be? We felt very clearly that God said, Listen, I've already told you the purpose that I have for you. I've already shown you what I want you to be and what I want you to be about. So just keep doing that. And so our vision this year is the same vision that we had last year, only we get to double down in it. We get to lean in and say, okay, God, we are in completely. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, uh, let's go ahead and throw our, our purpose statement up on the board. This statement is more than just a, hey, this is the focus we want for this year. This is the purpose that we have as a church, and that is that Lighthouse Community Church is committed to making disciples who love God, love one another, and love our neighbor. So the main priority for us as a church is to make disciples. You go, well, what what kind of disciples? What does it mean to be a disciple? One of the things I really love about the purpose statement is it not only has our purpose, but it also has the process by which we go about doing that. Okay. So what, what are some of the markers of a healthy Committed disciple, well, it's somebody who loves God. It's somebody who loves one another, is doing life with other people. It's somebody who loves their neighbor, is not simply looking about how do I get my needs met, but is looking beyond the walls of their own sphere of influence and saying, how can God use me beyond that? It's people who say, how can I look beyond the walls of this building and be used out there? And so we are going to go through those latter three parts, the loving God, loving one another, and loving your neighbor's component over the next few weeks. But today, I just want to zero in on that first part, which is ultimately our our greatest purpose, which is to make disciples. And and some of you might be wondering, well, wait a minute, that's that's an interesting choice. Why, Why making disciples is the primary purpose of the church? Why not worshiping God? Why not spreading the gospel, right? There's so many other things. Why that? And the reason I would give you is it's the same purpose that Jesus had in his ministry. It was the same focus that Jesus had in everything that he did. He may have worshiped God in everything that he did, and he may have spread the gospel and heal people and feed people. But ultimately, he was about making disciples over his first three years of ministry or his public ministry. He was all about investing in other people so that when he ultimately went to be with the Father, they could continue to do what he did. So if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. It's the last chapter of the book of Matthew. And, and if you don't have a Bible, you'll notice that in the seat backs in front of you, there's some new ones. That was, there was a reason for doing that. First off, um, we, we wanted to get more, and, and we felt like it was time to maybe update them. But here's the main reason why we chose to do this. We kept saying, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one that's there. But a lot of people looked at them and go, man, this feels more like it belongs in the church. It's the hard back. It's like gold foil stamped. I, I, that doesn't belong in my house. That's, you know, I don't want to take that. That's stealing. I'm not going to steal from the church. And so we just wanted to remove that impediment. These Bibles have some study guide materials in them, and they are not that expensive, and we've got lots of extra boxes of them. So if you do not have a Bible of your own, take that one. If you know somebody that doesn't have a Bible of their own, you're more than welcome to take that and give it to them, our gift to you, in order to bless somebody else with it, okay? We've got more of them. But that's the reason why we chose to do that. Now, if you're in Matthew chapter 28... This is the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven to begin preparing the place that we ultimately um, will get to be with him and the Father. And he says in verse 18 of Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All right, The Father has entrusted to me the ability to judge and to give power and authority, and I'm giving it to you. So now go in my name. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, I'm not leaving you alone, because he was implanting his spirit in their hearts, he says, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So not only was Jesus' ministry about pouring into other people and making disciples, but Jesus commissioned his disciples to go and make more disciples disciples. Of course, this then begs the question, well, what is a disciple? What does that mean? Because that's one of those Christianese words that we tend to throw around in the church, but we don't always define. So today I want to spend the majority of my time defining what I mean by that term disciple and then explaining what that will look like and how we are going to go about doing that today and in the coming week. All right, so a disciple, if you've got your, your outlines and your things this is the first filling. a disciple the term means an apprentice or a student. That's the, the most you know, definitive definition definitive definition. That's, forget it, okay? It's early. I haven't had coffee yet. So a student or an apprentice is, is what that word literally means. But I don't want you to hear that word "student." And begin to think that a disciple is somebody who sits at a desk for a couple hours a day for a few days a week and takes notes and learns from somebody that way. It is not solely and it is not primarily about information transfer. A disciple is not simply trying to learn more. It is about transformation of the heart. And that doesn't happen simply by learning more stuff. That disciple ultimately chooses to spend time with his rabbi to follow him. And as he does so, as she does so, as that disciple is in proximity to his or her rabbi, they're naturally going to be shaped in the image of their rabbi. And so the best term that I can give you for being a disciple is a follower of someone, someone that you follow around. Because, well, you know what? I tell you what, let's back up for a second. And let me explain to you what discipleship looked like in Jesus' day. Because if he's using this terminology, he obviously has some context that he's pulling it out of. So let's explain the context here and then we'll have a better understanding of what he means when he says go and make disciples. So if you were a child growing up in Israel around Jesus' time and you turned six years old around the same time that my son Grayson just learned how to ride a bike, you would be sent to the synagogue to begin being trained in in, in your theological foundation. You would be sent to a class called Bet Sefer. And Bet Sefer, can you throw that up on the board for a second, Mark? Yes, no, maybe so. Doesn't matter. Yeah, is it there? No, that's not it. (laughs) That is not the classroom you'd be sent to. There we go. All right. I want to go to school there. That's all I'm saying. So this is the discipleship track at Jesus' day. From ages six to ten, you would go to Bet Sefer, which means the house of the book, and you would you would read. The Hebrew scriptures, they would be in scrolls at that time or you might listen to one of the teachers reading from this and you would simply listen and auditorily learn this. And they would read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And by the time of 10 years old, you would have read and studied those first five books of the Bible, what you would know as the Pentateuch. You would know them so well that you had them memorized. That's a lot. My kids right now, I try to get them to remember to brush their teeth. We got six through ten-year-olds who are memorizing Scripture. And, and these are important books of the Bible for them because they're the foundation of their theological understanding as a people. Because it's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that the people of Israel hear their history and understand their relationship with God, understand how they were formed as a people and what God ultimately formed them for and called them to. So they'd have this memorized by the age of 10. Now, some of the kids at that point would go, that's good, but that's not really working for me. I, I, I just have such a hard time remembering these kind of things. But those who really excelled at this would go to the second level of of education and that would be from ages 10 to 14 they would go into something called Bet Talmud. This is the house of learning. And this would be for the best of the best where they now begin to study the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. All the way from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the Italian prophet right at the very end. They would read it over and over and over. They would study it. They would... They would have conversations with people about it, with other students and with their their teachers. They would ask questions. They would be asked questions about it to the point where they had the entire Hebrew Scriptures memorized. This is scary to think about, that a 14-year-old would be able to say, hey, give me Psalm 27, and he would just be able to rattle rattle it off the top of his head. And hopefully... Not just have it memorized up here, but begin to understand it. Now, that's pretty much the extent of most Jewish children's education. At this point, they would graduate out of Bet Talmud, and they would go back to their parents, and they would begin uh, the family trade. Some of them would be carpenters. Some of them would go into basket making. Some of them would be uh, fishermen. You know, whatever your, your dad does, chances are you're going to join him in that family business or be apprenticed to someone else in some other trade. <clears throat> but there was a select group of kids, the cream of the crop, that truly kind of shined above all else. And, and, and they would be told, listen, you are ready to become a disciple. You are ready to... ...for the big leagues. And so they would go and they would find a rabbi that they respected. A rabbi whose teaching, whose worldview, it was known as a yoke. It basically is his teaching and his understanding of the scriptures... ...and his understanding of how the world works from a theological perspective. And they would go to this rabbi and say, Sir, I would like to be your disciple, your apprentice... And the rabbi would say, okay, well, come in here, sit down, let me ask you some questions. And he would begin to grill this prospective disciple with question after question. And we're talking, remember, this, this uh, potential apprentice is supposed to have the Old Testament memorized. So the kind of questions he's asking is, how many times is the word with used in the book of Genesis? And now that kid has to, from his mind, 14. And he's either right or he's wrong. And he would ask more questions and more questions and more questions. It's like a, a, the GMAT on steroids. That's like the next level of SAT, Bella. You, you guys will get there, maybe. So so are asking questions. And if this rabbi thinks that this student has what it takes, realizes this student has both the intellectual chops but also the character and understanding to be his disciple, then that, that rabbi would look at the student and say, Come, follow me. And he would invite him into a discipleship relationship. Now, if you had the luck, if you had the blessing... Of hearing, come follow me. And by the way, this is just the cream of the crop. We're talking like the same amount of people that might get a a full ride scholarship to an Ivy League school. That's kind of the the cream of the crop we're talking about. If you had the, the blessing to hear those words, come follow me, then you had three goals. Three primary goals that you wanted out of this relationship. Goal number one is that you would be with your rabbi. And I am not talking about being with them, you know, for three hours a day, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This isn't a classroom relationship. When I say be with, I mean you would move out of your house, you would move in with the rabbi, and you would spend every waking moment there. 24-7 you are with your rabbi. Where he goes, you go. What he does, you do. When he eats breakfast, you eat breakfast. And what he eats for breakfast, you eat for breakfast. And the more time you spend with your rabbi, the closer proximity you have to your rabbi, you begin to be shaped to be more like your rabbi. Which leads us to our second goal of being a disciple. And that is that you would become more like your rabbi. To become like him. So you begin thinking like your rabbi. You begin talking like your rabbi. Any, any of you guys ever like hung out with somebody with an accent and find that very quickly you almost start trying to pick up the cadence? And like I watched a movie the other day where somebody was speaking in an Irish accent the whole time and by the end of it for like the next five minutes after the movie was over I was talking to Kathy with an Irish accent. It wore off quickly because it, it never lasts. It always goes to that Scottish rogue that i it 's like the only thing that I can do um, and but but i I was trying right and and so you end up speaking like your rabbi, you start thinking like your rabbi, you start reasoning like him. So when somebody asks you a question, you don't just answer it the way you would normally answer it, you, you begin answering it the way he does. And when somebody gives you a problem that you're not sure how to, to kind of process through, you naturally start thinking about it the same way your rabbi does. When you interact with people, you find yourself naturally interacting with them the same way that your rabbi does. And ultimately, the, the the ultimate goal of discipleship though is that you would ultimately do what your rabbi did or what your rabbi does. Because a rabbi was not interested in just taking anybody and everybody they could. To be their disciples. A rabbi's point, the reason a rabbi was willing to spend 24-7 with a disciple is because when they looked at this individual, he goes, this person has the ability to be a rabbi just like me. This person can ultimately do, someday, with enough training, with enough investment of my time, this person can carry on what I am doing. So Jesus, you don't have to turn here. But in John chapter 14, Jesus looks at his disciples that he's invited and he's having a meal with them. He says in verse 12 of of John chapter 14, truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. In fact, they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the father and I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send my spirit to be with you and in you. And if you rely on him, if you rest in me, if you continue to obey what I have taught you, then not only will you do what I have been doing, but you'll do even greater things than you've seen me do. And the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended, remember, I, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So now go. And do what I've been doing in making more disciples. Baptizing them, that kind of beginning declaration publicly that I am choosing to follow Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. Take the yoke of my teaching and give it to others. So that they too can be shaped in my image. So the point and the focus of discipleship is that we would become more like our rabbi so that we can do what our rabbi does and what we've seen him do. But all of this is founded off of that first and I would suggest the most important step and that is that we actually spend time with the rabbi that we are with him and allow our proximity to him to be shaped by him. That's what we're going to talk more about next week. What does that look like? How do we do that? Because it's one thing when you can see Jesus in the flesh. It's yet another thing when we can't see him in the flesh, when we can read about him, when his spirit resides in us. But how can we be shaped by our proximity to him? That's what we'll talk about next week. But here's what I want you to hear. Our desire as a church is not simply to make you more intellectually astute when it comes to theology. I have no desire to, to encourage people to become more um, theologically arrogant. Where they can answer any question immediately and shut people down. That, that's not our goal. It's just intellectual stimulation. It is genuine transformation. It's helping people begin to reflect the heart of God. Because I'll tell you, there were a bunch of rabbis in Jesus' day. There were a bunch of disciples in Jesus' day that knew all of this. Here. But they completely missed the heart of it. And that's why Jesus' greatest frustration... And the the greatest amount of conflict he had was with those individuals who had memorized all of Scripture and completely missed its heart. That's why he spent so much time in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you, here's the heart of what God was driving at. It's not about the external, it's about the internal and it's about your heart. That needs to be changed. Wash the inside of the cup and the outside will be clean. Don't just focus on the external when your insides are full of pride and arrogance and selfishness. So our goal is not simply to know about, it's to know our Father God. It's to walk with our Savior and of course, this, this, I want to I be clear on something. When I'm saying we want to make disciples, I have zero interest in trying to make disciples of me. We are not asking you to become disciples of Jeff or Diane or anybody else in this church. We are, from beginning to end, desiring to become disciples of Jesus Christ. He is the one we want to follow. He is the one that has invited us To become like him. To be shaped in his image. And to follow him. Because you notice. That the invitation that Jesus gave. Was never. Pray this prayer. Instead it was follow me. And that's the invitation that you and I. Have all received. Is to follow him. And be shaped in his image. Now a couple things I want to point out. About discipleship. First off. It is not optional. And I recognize that within the church, we've made it that way. We, in some ways, have even presented it because we have we placed an emphasis on praying a prayer. We've almost made praying a prayer into the finish line, as if that's all we need to get to. We focus on, just do this, just pray the prayer, and you're good, Right? And we spend all this energy doing it as if we, if we can get the person to pray the prayer that, okay, we're good to go. Yeah, you're, you're, you're doing next. And we move on to the next person. The problem is that would be like me saying all I need to do is get Kathy to say yes on our wedding day. And I'm good. Right? At that point, end of story. And then I never have to actually spend another time romancing her heart. Never have to take her on another date. All I need to do is get her to say yes. But anybody who has ever stood at the altar, anybody who has ever covenanted your life to another person and put a ring on your fingers, an external declaration of an internal decision that your heart is no longer o- only your own, we know that that day is just the beginning of a lifetime of learning what it means to be a spouse to another person. And it's not all, you know, rainbows and butterflies the rest of the time. There are difficult seasons in marriage. If any of you have been married, you know marriage is really hard. Marriage is God's way of showing us just how selfish and self-centered we really are. And it's God's way of refining us, which is uncomfortable. I don't know about you, but I don't like the refinement process because it, it actually forces me to look at some things that I don't like about myself. And in the same way, following Jesus is not simply a momentary decision. It is a lifetime of following him. It's interesting to me that um, we, we tend to turn Christianity into kind of the first rung of following Jesus. And discipleship becomes treated like it's the special forces right? These are the best of the best. These are the ones who really know about it. They're the ones who are really committed. But here's where I'm at. I'm good. I prayed the prayer. I'm in. Cool. I'll show up to church every once in a while. I'll throw some coinage in the basket. Whatever. You know, I'm in. Yeah, I'm a believer. But I, I wouldn't call myself a disciple. Notice that Jesus never once called people to be believers. Never once called people to be Christians. In fact, 269 times in the New Testament, the word disciple is used to describe followers of Jesus Christ. 269 times. Whereas the term believer is used twice. And the term Christian is used three times. And all three of them are used in a, de- in a derogatory sense as they put down to those followers of Jesus who want to be little Christs. That's what Christian means, is little Christ. And they were laughing, oh, you little Christs. And uh, and the believers are like, well, actually, yeah, that's exactly what we want to be. Sure, yeah, go ahead and call us that. In fact, we will take it as a a declaration of who we ascribe to be. We want to be little Christs. But ultimately, when Jesus looked at people, He never said, pray this prayer. His invitation was always the same invitation that rabbis in his culture gave to the best of the best. His invitation was follow me. And what I love most about Jesus is that he didn't call the ones who were what the society would have considered to be the best of the best. He called the ones who didn't make the cut. He called the ones who felt like they were unworthy. His first ones are a bunch of fishermen, which means, by the way, that they washed out of this whole discipleship school. They never were able to apprentice with a rabbi. They never made the cut. So they went and they began to apprentice with their father in the family business. And Jesus sees them and says, You guys, come, follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. Or he sees this guy who's a tax collector, which in that day and age is, well, similar to tax collectors today, I guess. You know, not that appreciated. Maybe it's closer to like an attorney. I hope my dad's not here because, yeah. But, but, you know, not always really respected and appreciated in society. He goes up to this guy and he says, come, follow me. And notice what each and every one of those individuals do. They drop what they're doing. They leave their livelihood, they leave their comfort, they leave their homes, and they follow him where he leads. Even though he doesn't have a home of his own, Jesus wasn't a property owner. Oh, poor guy. Jesus recognized that his foundation was not in what he had, but in who he was and and the relationship he had with the Father. And he invited his disciples to follow him to spend time with him, to be shaped by their proximity to him so that they would become more like him and ultimately so that they could do what he did. The second thing I need us to notice is that discipleship is not a momentary decision. It's not something that just happens for a little bit of time. Some of us, and I'm, the, I, I'm right here with you, I enjoyed the holidays. I enjoyed the laziness of it. I don't think I exercised one time through it. I'm feeling that right now. I enjoyed all of the sweets. I said yes to everything. So all of you who made me chocolate and all of you who baked things, I appreciate it. And now I have evidence of how much I enjoyed it. So thank you for that. But I don't even know the point I was trying to get at right there. It's so good. Anyway, yeah, I, what, what was I saying? Oh, the routine. Yeah, there, there was. I, no, I still don't have a clue where I was going. Whatever. You get it. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Okay, so it's not just about momentary, because in my mind right now, I'm like, okay, I got to go hit the gym like four times this week for like an hour and a half each time, and I'll get back to it. And we all know that that's not the case, right? It, following Jesus is not a, a, a decision for a week or two. It's not a, hey, I'm going to commit to reading the whole Bible over the next month and then it's there and then I can go on and do something else and I can jerk the wheel or I can jerk the handlebars and go a different direction. It's not drinking from the theological fire hose. That's not going to change us. If we actually want to change, we need to have a long obedience in the same direction. We need to choose to follow him not just for a moment, But for a lifetime. And so I don't know if some of you you're walking into here for the first time. This is the first time you stepped foot in church. This is part of your New Year's resolution. Is you know what I need to go and check out church and see if there's anything to it. And there's some of you who have been here for longer than many of us have been alive. And you've been following Jesus for closer to a century. And it doesn't matter where you are on that journey, all of us receive the same invitation. Follow me. And for as long as we have breath in our lungs, that invitation stands because we will never arrive at completion. That doesn't mean that we aren't able to be used by God. It doesn't mean that He can't use us to do what He did. In fact, He can, and we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But for all of us, We need to choose whether or not we will be his disciple. Whether we will follow him, even when it causes us to say no to things that we rely upon. The disciples had to turn their backs on on, on their homes and on their comfort and on their livelihoods to follow him. Sometimes, this morning actually, when a group of us were up there praying, I found myself going, God, this is your church not ours. We are, we are the um, entrusted with care for it. And I called this place home. But at the end of the day, you own this church. You are the one who determines what we do. And so, Father, have your way. And if that means that you want to lead us a different direction than what I feel like you've said, give us the ears to hear and the hearts that are courageous enough to trust you. Help us to trust you so that when it seems like it's going in an opposite direction than where we think we should go, we are still willing to follow you because you are our shepherd and give us the discernment to recognize your voice from all of the other voices. So discipleship is not optional. We are either disciples, followers, apprentices to our rabbi, Jesus, or we're not. There's no in-between. There's no, I'm going to be a Christian for a while and maybe one day I'll become a disciple. You're either a disciple or you're not. You're either choosing to follow him, submit to him, learn from him, becoming more like him, taking his yoke upon you so that you can ultimately do what he's called you to do or you're not. And it's not a very short process. This is a lifetime decision. So it's one that I would encourage you not to take lightly. Now, The point of today is I simply want to drive home the the heartbeat of what our church is about. We feel as if God has said, your primary purpose as a church is to be disciples and make disciples. That means it starts here. I cannot lead you if I'm not first following my shepherd. And it starts with Jeff and it starts with our staff and our elders. We commit as a church to investing in our relationships with God. Because we can only lead as he leads us. Secondly, this means that as a church, everything that we do runs through the filter of this purpose statement. One of the things I really appreciate about the purpose statement that we have is that it clearly defines what our goal is, where we are going. This is the destination. It's about making disciples. So now everything that we do can be run through that filter. We can look at our ministries. We can look at our teaching schedule. I'll share more of that with you uh, during Dream Day. We can look at where we spend the resources that God has entrusted to us. We can talk about and decide how to invest in each of our different areas from our youth ministry and, and our young adults ministry and our small groups, even our children and our preschool. All of those ministries ultimately have been asked the same question What does making disciples look like in your ministry? So now, rather than us all running in different directions, it helps unify us around a common goal and we're all pulling in the same way. And finally, it provides accountability. Because we can look at that purpose statement and say, okay, are we accomplishing this? Is this actually playing out here? In what ways are we doing it? And what's getting in the way? What needs to be strategically abandoned so that we can continue to lean into what God is calling us to do? Does that make sense? So this purpose statement is, is crucial for us as a staff and leadership of this church. But it is also important for you because it provides you with a picture of what we're about and it gives you the ability to decide am I in or not. Because I'll tell you this, I have no interest in collecting fans who sit in the stands and, and, and watch and celebrate and cheer on those professional Christians who are doing the work. Instead, I want to invite you onto the field and help you to recognize that you have a part to play. And toward that end, I want to use an illustration I've used in the past. But it's the best one I can think of for, for the different postures that people take when it comes to church. Now, the first posture is that of a cruise ship. So now, there we go. Every year, I'd say every couple of years, Kathy and I like to get away on a cruise ship. She really likes it because she likes the nice meals. She likes entertainment. And most importantly, she likes her husband to do it with her without being grudging. Because my tendency is when we go on a trip, we're going hard. It's the kind of vacation where you need vacation after the vacation to make up for the vacation. I'm all about let's see as many things as we can see and do as many things as we can do, and she's exhausted just trying to keep up with me. She loves cruise ships, and I love cruise ships because I go into just down mode. We've done it enough that we don't have to see everything. We know what's on the ship. We know what's expected. They feed us whatever we want, as much of it as we want. I test that every time. (laughs) They entertain us, and they wait upon our every whim. Whatever I feel like I want, there's somebody there. If I make a big mess, leave it. Somebody will be there to clean it up for us, right? All they ask of me when I am on a cruise is that we give them some money and they'll take care of everything else. Now, I love going on a cruise for a couple of days, but can you imagine what would happen if I lived on it? There'd be a little bit more of me to love, right? be a little deeper and wider, Um, but there would also be, I would begin to look at the world differently, I would begin to think that people are there to wait upon me, I would become more self-focused. I would become more about being entertained in my wants and my desires than anything else. It would be very unhealthy if I tried to live on a cruise ship because suddenly the world would kind of zero in on everyone's here to serve me. What do I want? Because I'm paying, so you better provide, right? And there are some people who approach church in this way because in some ways we can approach church like a cruise ship and we could show up and say, listen, I'll throw some money in. But I want to be fed in a way that I want to be fed. And I want to be entertained. I don't want Jeff or Eric doing announcements. I want Ken. That guy's funny. <laughs> and I want these certain songs. The songs had better be good. Right? I don't know about this country thing. I mean, that's just, that's just not working for me. Two types of music I don't like, country and western. Right? So, And there's some of you going... Okay, when are we going to get some rap? Come on. Worship the way I like to listen. And, and then we can begin to think, well, I, I want my needs to be met. So where I, I, I have my kids who are this age, and I want programs that you know, help train them to be Christ followers because it's your job to train my kids up to be what I want them to be and to love Jesus and all that stuff. That's not my job. My job is to go to work and you know, do whatever I do. Your job is to make them Christ followers. And then I want to make sure that if I'm going to be a part of a small group, well, then I want it to be something that's on a night that works well for me, and I want them to feed me dinner, and I want to make sure that it's a, you know that the study is really good. And I don't want to do any preparation, so do not ask me to read something in the middle of the week to prepare for this thing. And when I come to church on Sunday, it better be entertaining, Eric. It better be, it better be something I've never heard before. And you better not make any more comments about USC football. It can only be, you know, love you, Dave. And very quickly, church becomes about meeting our needs and it becomes self-focused and we become spiritually fat and lazy and selfish. That's one approach. That's one posture that some of us might be tempted to take. And quite honestly, that some churches are tempted to try to address so that people will stay. The other posture is probably best epitomized by a clipper ship. Now, a couple of things that we notice right off the top of this clipper ship is that it's much smaller than a cruise ship. For good reason. It doesn't need as much space to entertain passengers. In fact, on a clipper ship, there are no passengers. Every single person that's on a clipper ship is a crew member. And every single person that's on a clipper ship has a part to play from the captain on down to the deck hand who scrubs the deck. Everybody plays a part. Now, of course, everybody gets fed. But it might not always be a whole gamut of choices. You may not always get lobster tail. But you're going to get fed. And the biggest difference between a cruise ship and a clipper ship is that a cruise ship, if you've ever looked at what they do, it's kind of like they go out to sea and then they just kind of meander. They're really not going anywhere. It's more about just keeping the ship from... Their greatest goal when they're figuring out where they're motoring is that, A, we need to get in international water so that we can start, you know, letting people gamble so we can get more of their money. We need to take them down to Mexico so that we can get out of here so now we don't have to pay all the taxes for, you know, this can be an international ship. And then thirdly and most importantly we want to make sure that the ship doesn't bounce too much. So we're going to just kind of decide our trajectory based upon where the waves are, and we're just going to kind of follow that and let that dictate our course. A clipper ship, on the other hand, has a very clear goal. They are commissioned for a purpose, whether it's the owner of the ship or whomever kind of is the the person that has said, this is what I want you to do, they have a very clear goal in mind, and every single person on the ship, from the captain to the deckhand, even to the marines who are on there for offshore excursions for when they need to go and do something off of the ship, all of them have the same purpose, accomplishing the goal for which they have been commissioned. And this morning, I have explained to you The goal for which we have been commissioned I started scratching the surface of it. We have been called to make disciples, apprentices, followers of Jesus. Again, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at what that looks like and how we are going to do that. And then the the different characteristics of a mature, growing disciple of Jesus Christ. So in no way is this conversation finished. But I hope that you see that the invitation is not to join this cruise ship so that we can feed you whatever you want and entertain you to the best of our ability and um, meet your every need. In fact, there are going to be some of your needs that we are going to specifically say that is not something we're going to invest our time in. That's not a ministry that we're going to focus on because it actually would undermine the goal that God has given us, it would distract us from this. There have been some of the ministries that we've done in the past that we've strategically abandoned specifically because it does not help us stay focused on the goal for which God has given us. Because everything we say yes to, good things, and I'm a yes man by the way, I love new stuff to run at, but I recognize that everything we say yes to either underlines or undermines our calling. It either helps us or it hinders us from accomplishing what God has called us to do. And we believe that God has called us as a church to make disciples of ourselves, of one another, and ultimately of those beyond the walls of this church. That is what we are about. That is what we will continue to be about. And everything we do is run through that filter. And so here's my invitation to you. Are you in? Are you willing To get out of the stands, get onto the field, and play whatever part God ultimately lays on your heart. And I understand you may not have a clue what that is at this point. And it is my desire over the coming weeks, months, and years that that becomes more apparent. But are you willing to play a part and be a part of this clippership? It's not always going to be entertaining. It's gonna, there can be some rough patches. We're going to hit some waves that are going to kind of smack us sideways, but we have a very clear focus of where we're headed and we want everything that we do to be focused on that. And, and so I ask you, are you in? Are you willing to join us by, by cultivating your own relationship with Jesus and then making yourself available for God to use you however, you, however he sees that? Can he help himself to your life? To use your time, your talents, and the treasures he's entrusted to you to do what he's asked you to do. If the answer to that question is yes, then I invite you to stand up right now. And if you're not sure yet, it's okay. You don't have to stand up. Awesome. Well, then I'd ask you to bow your heads. And I just want to commission us to this very exciting invitation. So, Father God, I thank you. For my brothers and my sisters, I thank you that you have called us to be a family of believers who are pursuing you together. I love that the disciples didn't just have you, they had one another. And I'm so grateful that we don't just have you, we have one another. And I'm grateful to be on this adventure of following you with them. Father God, I pray that you would make abundantly clear the direction you're leading us, that you would continue to show us the things that get in the way, you would continue to show us what to lay down, and that you would clearly show us how to join you in what you're doing. Would you break our hearts for the things that break yours? Would you give us the eyes to see what you're up to and discernment to know how to join you in it? Ultimately, Father God, this is your church. It's not mine. It's not any of ours to own and to dictate what we do. So have your way with it. Have your way with us because we are your church. And we are your church not just from 10 to 11.30 on a Sunday morning. We are your church 24 hours a day, seven days a week because we are your disciples. And we want to be with you. We want to become like you. And we want to do what you call us to do and what you have done already. That's what we want to do. So have your way with us, Jesus. In your name. Amen.